to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Thank you very much for joining me on the VC Law Podcast, a new podcast from the American Bar Association. We're very honored to have Kendrick Gray with us from Republic. So I've known Kendrick for a long time, uh, and we'll go into a little bit of that. Kendrick is the founder of Republic. And uh, Kendrick, what's your current title at Republic? Is it CEO <laughs> or co-CEO or chairman? No, or I, I guess, uh, sadly, there's always been uh, only one CEO and I've been it, uh, but cannot wait to share the, uh, the growing, overwhelming responsibilities. Oh, okay. Great. Well, uh, Kendrick began after after law school. He uh, spent a couple of years at Goodwin Proctor. And uh, were you a litigator at Goodwin? Is, did I, I read that I right? Securities litigation. Yeah, I didn't even know that. So that's that's interesting. And then after that, you went to a company that I'm not familiar with, and I don't believe we've ever discussed. Permal. Per- Permal. Permal. Correct. Permal. And was that your introduction to investment funds, or had you done some fun work at Goodwin? No, no, it was uh, more or less. Uh, and I quickly became the US GC for the fund, which was uh, about $40 billion under management uh, at the beginning of the financial crisis. Oh, wow. Okay. And how did the financial crisis affect uh, Pramal? Uh, not well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the entire industry. So they have, uh, you know, the AUM went down to about, I think, 11 uh, billions in uh, about five, six years later, and then they subsumed and got acquired by a different company. Oh, okay. And a lot of us during the recession, people ride it out the uh, recession of uh, um, 08, 09, 10, 11 in different places. I was in government and you were teaching at Stanford Law School for a little while, right? Uh, yes, sir. For a good two years as a teaching fellow and doing uh, uh, some research, um, you know, in corporate governance uh, with the, the Rock Center uh, at Stanford University. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about grading papers, Kendrick. I'm, I'm an adjunct and I hate grading papers. So did you have help grading papers? You know, I loved the uh, teaching component and did not mind grading paper, though uh, everyone knows that uh, the grading scale at Stanford is, you know, is hyperinflated. I shouldn't <laughs> say that, but uh, the, uh, the least uh, enjoyable aspect uh, for me was writing uh, academic papers. Uh, you have publication requirements and all of that. And I'm, ter- I'm, I'm, I'm bad at it. I don't like it. I'm terrible um, at coming up with new uh, legal concepts to write a 300-page dissertation on. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if I could, or not if, I'm sure eventually we'll go back to uh, uh, academia. Yeah, but certainly in uh, in the non-paper writing adjunct fashion. Yeah, all those footnotes. It's crazy. Some of that stuff you can't even read. Like the page will be like uh, nine tenths footnotes and like one tenth actual actual topic. The ABA has a magazine called Insights, and it's actually pretty good. It's for practicing attorneys, and there's no footnotes. So it's just solid information. You don't have all the those footnotes taking up all the, the page. I- I certainly can subscribe to that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And then your next stop was general counsel at Angelus. 
And what an amazing uh, time I'm sure that was. That's when we met. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, about that and your intro. And I know you were first in the San Francisco office, and then eventually Angelus opened a New York office. And it was a time of great change from 2014 to 2016. It seems like Angelus already had the no action letter in place, which uh, you know was very kind of industry. Um, it, it was very very important for equity investing uh, through websites. Uh, how did you see Angelus change from 14 to 16? Well, um, so when I joined Angelis, um, I think they had just, just like you mentioned, uh, they got a new action letter and switch from what was just a informational platform into a fintech company, meaning changing from just sharing information for people to use however they deem fit to facilitating investment transactions. So from being not regulated or very lightly regulated to you know, squarely in the, the, the RAM of uh, securities offerings uh, and broker dealer and investment advisor activities. Uh, so to that end, uh, I certainly was the first uh, lawyer uh, to join the firm. And I believe I might have been the first non-engineer as well. Um, 2014 to 2016, I think, was the formation years of what I call the syndication business. That is people syndicating SPV to invest into deals. Uh, and AngelList obviously being the, the, the platform that launched it, but in conjunction with that, uh, that also became a widespread um, product, uh, the SPV product within venture, uh, within Silicon Valley and beyond. Yeah, and I remember a lot of those trying to figure out how exempt reporting advisor status, you know, who would get that if it was going to be every fund lead or just be angelist advisors working out all that during that time. It was a very interesting time and the product just took off. I still remember, uh, Gary, that um, the notion that you can templatize everything and then you leave the provisions that uh, are subject to change toward the very end or at the very beginning, but the body of the agreement stayed the same, not unlike an ISDA agreement, but the fact that you would turn fund formation into that format, which is exactly what Angelus did with syndication. Um, itself is not a new concept per se, but the execution of it certainly was nothing like the industry has seen at that time. And I think that's how they were able to lower the cost of uh, fund and SPB formation, uh, obviously with your help uh, during that time as well, uh, in a way that had never been done before. Yeah, it eventually got to where where it is now, where they're just, you know, I don't think we're violating any confidentiality or anything, but just to plug in the definitions in the back in the exhibit. And then boom, you got a fun, a fun out the door. I remember the first time some investors would see it, they'd be like, what is this? Yeah, because they're used to seeing uh they're, they're, they weren't used to seeing a document like that. But now I feel like with all the, you know, Angelus has spawned a lot of competitors. And now they're they're all using the same style too. So nobody is spending, you know, uh five five weeks on each each fund anymore. So to answer your question between 2014 and 2016, in many ways, uh, Angelus launched a whole new industry uh, mm -hmm. rather than just growing as a company. Yeah, yeah. And then 2016, uh, Republic was was founded. What day did it actually launch? Was it was it that spring or the summer? 
No, you know, the law, uh, it was launched in July of 2016, but uh, uh, the Jobs Act or regulation uh, crowdfunding became effective on May 16, uh, 2016, but uh, we didn't launch until July. There were a few firms launched in May and had a two-month advantage on Republic. Uh, but the notion, of course, is to allow anyone and everyone, any net worth, any income, to invest in private securities through licensed platforms like Republic. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that there would be no Republic without the Jobs Act being passed in 2012? That would be a fair thing to say indeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my take on the Jobs Act is that the uh, regulation just becomes so, so onerous that the Jobs Act was a great pushing back on that regulation and saying, you know, maybe you don't need this for every single company. Maybe we need to open up some opportunities for non-accredited investors. Maybe there's a there's a better way to do it. In many ways, I don't think the Obama administration uh, got enough credit for, um, uh, you know, boosting or uh, spurring innovations and the economy. Uh, I think the Democrats come with a reputation of over-regulations, but mm -hmm. the Jobs Act is one example of actually undoing um, archaic regulations and make it easier for the private sector to flourish. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost easier these days to ask you what Republic doesn't do. But for the listeners, can you tell us what Republic does as of right now today? Yeah, so we are uh, today with the only uh, multi-asset private investment platform uh, in the world, as far as I know, uh, based here in the US, but also with subsidiaries and partners in the UK and soon Korea. Um, so all aspects of uh, investing and fundraising from early stage to late stage, non-accredited to accredited. Um, and crypto, uh, of course, uh, we're a dominant brand uh, in tokenization uh, and compliant, um, uh, you know, blockchain uh, leverage uh, to to uh, essentially bring the infrastructure of investing uh, into the future is the way that we look at it. But uh, in short, come to Republic um, <laughs> industry or founder, you should be able to find something that meets your interest. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's real estate in Austin or tokens or uh, whatnot, there's something something for everyone. Lots of exciting stuff happening. And why, why was crowdfunding an ideal base to build upon? Now, obviously, Republic still does a fair amount in crowdfunding, but it's a uh, you know it's not really the overwhelming portion of what Republic does. But it's unquestionably kind of how you all got your start. Why was crowdfunding a good base on which to build what Republic has become? Um, I think. It's not so much that crowdfunding was a good base, but that there's a foundational mission uh, as to why we do what we do and we did what we did then. And it's remained the same, which is to make um, financial access um, easier to bring forth financial equity. And what do I mean by that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense that um, a teacher and how she would invest her investable assets 
is far more limited in options and choice, or was far more limited uh, in options and choices than someone with 50 millions. I'm not talking about the amount being invested. I'm talking about the different ways one can invest. Most people in America put money in a saving account, in a CD account, earning yield, I don't know, 50 basis point, 1%, whereas you don't see the wealthy doing that because they have access to high yield and low yield and low return, but a wide variety of products that up until very recently, the purview of the rich. And so the concept at the beginning is how do you make um, the capital markets more accessible? So crowdfunding laws or crowd investing, I should say, really made it legally feasible. And so since we came from AngelList and venture capital, and everyone knows that venture uh, is uh, historically a uh, purview of uh, just the elite. Uh, and we believe that it should be accessible to uh, everyone and that if people, more people participate and invest in companies, that is going to be more fair for the founders looking to raise capital as well. Uh, so it's like a rising tide that lifts all boats. Yeah, I mean, particularly these days with a high, with a high inflation, if you put your money in a bank account, you're losing money. There's no way you're gonna you're gonna keep keep up with that. And Gary, the thing is, I'm not so sure that more than ten or twenty percent of the population even know that like it's it's common knowledge to you know to the lawyers out there right. and to the mbas but that's not common knowledge to most and that's why i think that financial equity financial information is so important so kendrick if you were gary gensler and you had got a blank check from congress what limits if any would you have on non-accredited people investing like would you have the limit these you know would you have the threshold of two hundred thousand? would that be lower or higher kind of what 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 do you think would be ideal uh that's a uh tricky question in that uh, on the one hand, I obviously think that people should be able to make their own decision if there's no cap on how much you can gamble in Vegas or how many T-shirts you can buy on Instagram. Why would there be a limit on how many uh, $10 investments you can make in impact-driven startups? But however, I understand the concerns and the sentiment. And so I don't think the current limits on non-accredited investor not investing more than five or 10% of their net worth is unreasonable. Like I wouldn't put that limit, but I'm okay with it. I think the limits on what companies must do to raise money from non-accred, I think it can be a far less onerous and that would definitely make or encourage more companies to avail themselves of regulation crowdfunding how does the republic enforce those limits on non-accredited investors so they can't non-accredited investors i believe so they're not allowed to spend what more than 10 percent of their net worth or their annual income i'm sure republic tracks it but there's some kind of self-certification as a part of it, correct? Because it's not like just one platform, you can invest 10%, because then you could go to this one platform and have 10% and then another 10% over here and another 10% over there. The law does recognize that uh, that uh, 
perfect verification is not feasible and it doesn't impose that requirement indeed self-certification and reasonable belief so we we know what people are investing on republic um, uh, and when when it comes to the activity outside of it we do rely on the information that uh, investors provide to us all right sounds good let me ask you next about changes in the law since 2016 so we've had a few things we had some changes in crowdfunding i think about a year and a half ago now allowing spvs and raising the limit from one to five million talk a little bit i guess uh first maybe we'll talk about the the reg cf limit going from 1.07 at the time because every five years it's supposed to change with cost of living up to five million what kind of changes did you all see in the companies or the investors so what 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 did you see come about as a result of that change? Well, uh, one major change is that you see more mature companies, companies that are already generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue, uh, realistically looking at regulation crowdfunding to include their community, the customers, uh, and let you know, defense, the ecosystem, be stakeholders. Now, before the law, uh, you know, before there was that legal change in the maximum, in the cap from one to five, one million was not enough um, for a company to go through all of this effort only to raise a million dollars if they already themselves are generating tens of million dollars in revenue. So it has the I'm not sure if it's an unintended or intended effect of by raising the cap, you actually are encouraging more credible, more uh, companies with more traction to come and raise from the public. And by definition, bigger revenue, more tractions means lower risk. So you are encouraging a cohort of better or lower risk investment opportunities uh, to the public in that sense. Uh, so I think that's obviously is a very positive change. Yeah, and I can say from the standpoint of preparing the Form C's, it became uh, a little bit more a little bit more time consuming because a lot of these more mature companies had more securities offerings. As you know, in the Form C, you've got to say the past securities offerings. And it used to be, okay, grandma and uncle Bob have securities in our startup, which we started, you know, four months ago. Instead, it was, hey, we started this company five years ago and we've had, you know, 15 securities offerings. So we, we had to disclose all that in there. I feel like through time, the Form C has gotten a little bit more owners. Do you all get comments from the SEC or FINRA saying, hey, it'd be nice if you asked for this, nice if you asked for that? Uh, you know, not beyond what they publicly encourage. Um, so um, I'm no longer wearing the lawyer hat or the <laughs> company. Uh, so I got to say that uh, take this with a grain of salt, but I don't uh, recall um, FINRA or the SEC specifically requesting a subset of information uh, mm -hmm. from Republic issuers because rightfully so, uh, if they think it's something that's worthwhile as a policy matter, they should implement uh, a directive or, or an amendment rather than uh, a one-off recommendation. Right. And the times that they've contacted us about issuers and they've talked, which has mainly been FINRA more so than the SEC. And FINRA has really just double checked the information in there. And a lot of times it's it's not the numbers or anything like that. It's really if somebody says, hey, we're the best X company in Iowa, then they want it that checked. 
So it's really just been more of a spot checking. We've been really lucky in the companies that we've represented. No one has really gotten in trouble. And each time Fenro's reached out, everything has been fine. They're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you were telling the truth. And then they've kind of moved on. I'm sure I won't ask you to reveal any details, Kendrick, but uh, I'm sure that there's been some who, uh, you know, got did get a slap on the wrist or even more than a slap on the wrist. You know, I got to say that this space, uh, given that it's been out now almost six years, um, you got a, uh, an observation on my end is that the industry is full of good actors. Uh, I don't think that there's ever been a single fraud, like absolutely fraudulent attempt. Uh, and there are many reasons for that, but that's so heartening uh, to, to, to see because uh, I'm a long, long term believer in uh, in the future of uh, everyone uh, investing and owning things that they care about. Yeah, absolutely. I know I've seen some state actions and it's it's interesting like what the state action has against somebody for a securities violation. It's stuff like having something in the newspaper or a periodical where that says, oh, 400 percent return in seven months. You know, these kind of outrageous thing and like some kind of ad with misspellings and this kind of crazy stuff that would never get on Republic or or even one of your even one of Republic's competitors. It's just there's too many people who look at it, you know, you've got a law firm that looks at it, you've got the platform, you have too many people. So I feel like the real bad actors who are getting securities fraud and the like, you know, they're going to shy away from crowdfunding. There's just kind of too much, too too many layers to it, I feel like. I agree completely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What about the crowdfunding? One one change that's uh, maybe it's more important to lawyers than anyone else. But as part of that, the the raising, they also had the change allowing companies to use SPVs. And they did it, the SEC did it in an interesting way where the company has to pay for it, can't charge any fees or anything like that. It's alongside alongside there. Did you all see any, uh, and and of course, the concern, Kendrick, as, as you know, is there's a belief that these big VCs are not going to invest in a company that's crowdfunding because, hey, you've got all these people on the cap table and, hey, I'm going to I'm not going to invest in that. You know, whereas if you have an SPV and then it's just one entry on the cap table instead of a whole bunch, I think that you and I might be a little skeptical of that. Uh, but I guess first, you know, you can share your skepticism yeah. with the with the audience and then talk about if the SPVs made any difference at all. That, that yeah, You know, oddly enough, um... The uh, the so-called messy captable concern, by and large, is a 12G issue. No more right. than 1,000 investor, um, 500 if you have a non-accred. Uh, and obviously, there's a threshold exemption for Rex CF up to a certain uh, amount. Now, 25 million. million of, yeah, 25 million uh, in, in assets. The SPV permission... Um, doesn't address that for the SPV itself. So if you do a very large campaign, technically you would have 5,000 investors in an SPV and that SPV is subject to 12G or the same. Yeah, it's a look through. So it doesn't do anything with that. So, uh, and, and the SPV itself, even if it's not looked through, the SPV itself is a company and has a 12G problem. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think our model is much more on the deferred conversion called a crowd save and or a custodial nominee structure whereby a shareholder of record will hold on behalf of a lot more. But we know that uh, some platforms out there, um, you know, do accommodate SPV and so do we. It's just not something that we recommend uh, regularly. But if an issuer shows a desire, we certainly can accommodate it. Okay, well, great. 
And uh, are there any other, well, we talked about one, uh, 1.07 to 5 million in SPV. So are there any other changes to the law that you would uh, look at as being most beneficial to uh, Republic since you all started in 2016? Uh, um, I think testing the waters has been oh, right. very yeah. helpful. Yeah. Why don't you um, tell the audience what that is? Yeah, testing the waters. When uh, regulation crowdfunding first launched, uh, there was a prohibition that you couldn't just roll out a campaign and say, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. Is anyone interested? And if so, submit your indication of interest to get, give you a better sense of whether you want to spend the money on lawyers and accountants to do the campaign. Uh, so that was prohibited uh, until March of last year. Uh, and I certainly think that that enables um, more companies to consider and get the data needed in order for them to assess whether a Republic campaign or a CF campaign makes sense for their business. Yeah, and I know that you all keep track of how many people become investors. So if someone has, you know, $1 million worth of people express interest. I know that you all know how many of those actually become, become investors. I won't ask you to reveal those, but I know from experience that you all are willing to tell an issuer that because sometimes if an issuer raises a whole, whole, whole lot of money uh, or they have a lot of interest in testing the waters, they might think, oh, that's money in the bank. It's not quite money in the bank, but it's kind of a, I know it's a pretty high percentage. So I don't yeah, feel yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you would know. Yeah, if you want to talk to it, you can. But my, uh, I mean, my sense is that if you have a hundred people express interest, I mean, I think it's like eighty or something like that who wind up investing. Yeah, so it, it varies per campaign, but the percentage is quite high. Obviously, subject to when you're going to roll out uh, the actual campaign to close. You know, the longer you wait, the more people will drop off. Uh, but if you do a testing. Uh, the waters campaign and then launch an actual campaign back to back immediately, then the conversion is indeed quite high. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What other changes in the law would you would you like to see? Uh, you know, I think that the requirement for companies to provide gap financial and publicly disclosed revenue and liabilities. It makes sense, right, in, in, in a certain way, but it is so broad and so, um, and such that it would deter certain early stage companies that are a little bit more sensitive about the competitive landscape. They don't want their competitors to know uh, how much revenue they made last year. They may be open to disclosing it to the investors, but to make it a public filing is pretty uh, onerous. Noted also that in the United Kingdoms, um, that requirement is not part of their retail crowdfunding uh, laws. And perhaps because of that, it's more widely adopted. Uh, it's been more widely adopted in the UK than in the US. Yeah, I agree with that because uh, with the with the issue of the gap financials, I can understand the argument that it's apples to apples, right? And if everybody just like shared their QuickBooks or whatnot, then okay, you might have one company calculating it one way. You've got you know one on accrual, one closing on the book. You might have other uh, different methods out there then to have everybody gap is like okay everybody's gap but we get so many questions from companies about oh okay well we've got this issue with that so it's you know it's gap except for this one one issue and it's issues that they're struggling with and then the if it's 
one of these companies that isn't so mature, it's like they've got to commit a lot of resources just to come up with gap financials. And I'm not sure it makes a huge difference to the investors, whether there's uh, whether one thing is reported one way as opposed to another way. I agree completely. Uh, I think the, in this early time, uh, the easier it is for companies to uh, to include the customers and to uh, a look to the general public as a source of capital. Uh, I think the more we should encourage it. I think the legal framework as is very thoughtful uh, and a little bit on the conservative uh, owner side. And so there's room for for relaxing things a little bit over time. And I'm confident that that will be the case. Well, let me ask you one more question. Uh, if they really relax the law uh, way down. So when crowdfunding first, when I first heard of crowdfunding, I thought it was going to be like the neighbor, the neighborhood coffee. You know, there's a, a store on the corner and somebody wants to open a coffee shop. So they take out a tin can and they go around the neighborhood and ask for money. And then they uh, have enough money where they, they open up the coffee shop. Instead, it was all about these portals and intermediaries and all of that. So what if they changed the law to do away with portals? Do you think that that would be a good thing or do you want and you can use this as an opportunity to talk about the role that portals play, which is an important one. But what if they took that step of making the portals optional? Yeah, so uh, Reg A portal is optional. I think the mm -hmm. smaller uh, campaigns, uh, I very much believe that uh, Congress intended for an intermediary to be a gatekeeper um, and eliminate the direct uh, or Absolutely. extensive direct contact between uh, the general public, the investing public, and any company out there. So uh, they want to put in there a lens around, um, you know, as a, as a gatekeeper. And Reg A, of course, does require an SEC qualification. So the SEC serves as a gatekeeper itself. Um, so I highly doubt that they will do away with that uh, anytime soon. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Uh, laws, laws change like all things in society. Um, and ad adaptability is uh, a trade that's required for anyone in any business. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like Congress said, hey, we've got, we're in the information age now. So the SEC, the securities laws have always, on the federal level, they've always been about disclosure and just knowing what you're getting into. And now you have technology where we can have portals like Republic and people see the financials of companies and learn about them and even ask them questions and get it answered. So you find out more, you, you have a, a vision into the company, which you didn't have back in the, the 1930s or 1940s. So the portals seem like they do play an important role. And the, the example that I gave of the corner coffee shop, uh, the in, interstate crowdfunding is available. And uh, I don't know how many states it's up to, but it's uh, it's high 30s or low 40s, somewhere around there. So uh, someone out there who wants to start a neighborhood coffee store um, can, can, can do that by getting out the tin can. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Kendrick, uh, one final, uh, uh, one one quick question. So I know you told me once that uh, when you wake up and then go to bed, you have thirty minutes without your mobile phone. So do you still uh, do you still practice that, Kendrick? You know, these days, certain days maybe uh, fifteen minutes, <laughs> ten <laughs> minutes, but I do try to not bring books and uh, electronic equipment uh, into bed. And in fact, when I First thing when I do when I do when I get up, I try for it not to be my cell phone either. Um, 
not a hundred percent, not every day, but hey, it's about life. It's about progression, not about right. perfection. So, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on VC Law. So it's great to catch up, Kendrick. I uh, hope you start feeling better and uh, enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy the spring. Thank you so much, Gary. Uh, wonderful uh, getting to catch up with you, and thank you for having me. Uh, have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.